0: You're listening to the Identity at the Center podcast. This is the show that talks about identity and access management and making sure you know who has access to what. Let's get started. Welcome to the Identity at the Center podcast. I'm Jeff, and that's Jim.
1: Hey, Jim. Hey, Jeff. How are you? Oh, not so bad. Yourself? Good, good. I've uh, I've been eating as many hamburgers as possible being that there was a ransomware attack recently on uh, the meat industry, and I figure it might be hard to get a hamburger in the future. So I'm doing what I can for humanity. You know, if there's one way to
0: get Americans up at arms and to really understand the threat of ransomware, it's taking away our hamburgers and cheeseburgers.
1: So I am, uh, I'm full support of that. Yeah, I mean, you shut down the, the gas pumps and then you get rid of hamburgers. I mean, uh, I, I have potential to be a very unhappy camper with the ransomware gangs. Yeah. I, and let
0: me be clear, I'm not supportive of the ransomware itself, just how to become aware of it being a potential issue, right? That's, let me just make sure that's clear. <laughs> yeah, right.
1: Exactly. So the other thing I've been doing is reading a book. Um, it was actually brought up on this show, recommended to us from Vittorio Bertucci. Oh, what was that? Like a million years ago called The Age of Surveillance Capitalism. It's a great book. And one thing I thought, like, you know, I know a lot of folks don't read paper books anymore, but one thing I thought was really cool was by having a paper book, you got to see that the footnotes were put in the back of the book and they're over a hundred pages of footnotes. So, I mean, this is a highly cited or a book with a lot of citations. So, uh, I thought that was kind of cool, but really good, good read so far. That sounds like it. I,
0: I have to say I'm more of a non- or more, more of a fiction reader, I guess I should say. The ones I've read recently would have been The Expanse of Amazon fame, that show. And then one of my favorites I think people should check out is We Are Legion, or We Are Bob, by Dennis Taylor, which is an interesting kind of sci-fi book <clears throat> where basically a human gets converted into AI and is basically in charge of kind of continuing the human experience, even though they are an AI uh, throughout the universe and kind of the challenges that come along with it, so... I hate to spoil it, but it's very much written in kind of like a first person perspective of Bob, the AI and how that works. So
1: I, I thought you were going to say comic books, but I will say that the more you read about like how our privacy is being eroded and uh, what's going on with artificial intelligence in the real world, who needs sci-fi?
0: That's true. I mean, <laughs> maybe you are all just living in a simulation. <laughs> We're all just in the matrix at this point. I think that's why it's important maybe to, maybe we can just dig it right into our main topic here for today, which is going to be the convergence of identity proofing and passwordless technologies. I wish I could claim that I came up with that title, but that directly came from our guest, Mike Engel. He's the head of strategic planning at One Cosmos. So welcome to the show. And also thank you for the fantastic title for for our our conversation today.
2: No, thanks. It's really great to be here. I look forward to chatting with you guys.
0: Yeah. So, you know, let's assume that we are not living in a simulation and that we do need to worry about authenticating each other in the real world and things like identity proofing and password passwordless. That's where we're going to take the conversation later. But before we do that, right, we have our, our ritual of uh, when we have a new person on the show to learn more kind of about their background and um, how they get into the identity space. Is it something that you chose or did it choose you?
2: Um, no, I I guess it's a mix of both. I've always been a, a security geek. I got my first computer when I was twelve. I was messing around, you know, I won't say hacking into things with CompuServe and AOL when I was still, uh, you know, running around high school. And so I I got into this very uh, geeky security-like mode of just always playing with computers in, a, in an interesting way. Um, when I graduated from college, I got into distributed systems and all that, and my career morphed into running the InfoSec program at Lehman Brothers back before the term CISO existed and all that. We launched it in the late nineties. I did that until 2008 and then went bankrupt. We'll talk about that another time. But uh, in that capacity, I, I was responsible for one of the, um, uh, first IAM projects on wall street. So account management, account provisioning before it was fashionable. So I got sucked into it then. And it's always been near and dear to my heart ever since.
0: That'll be interesting. I want to talk about that, about the I am kind of stuff before maybe it was even officially a thing. I think a lot of us kind of fell into that. Um, You know, real quickly, though, we were talking about books before. Is there anything specific that you're reading that that people should be checking out?
2: Yeah, a couple. Uh, You know, the the book that uh, Jim mentioned, the uh, surveillance capitalism, uh, that stuff's fascinating. There's so many things that happen behind the scenes that when you just hear it, you're like, uh, you know, I want to go hide under the bed. Um, Another one that's similar to that is called This Is How They Tell Me The World Ends, Um, and it gets into, it's by uh, Nicole, I don't know her last name that well, I'm looking at it here, Pearl Roth, Um, but she gets, she was a New York Times reporter and followed, uh, you know, Stuxnet and what the NSA did and just so many different aspects of how we are dependent and vulnerable from really scary things, Um, and it just... The histor historical side of it is is really amazing. I'd recommend that. And for those that just can't take any more security stuff in their in their daily breakfast, um, there's another one called uh, A World Without Email, and it just talks about how we've all been consumed by Slack and email, and it's broken the way we work. And I'm a big believer that, you know, we're uh, he calls it this hyper hive mentality where we're just constantly getting bombarded. So I'd recommend both of those books to anybody who has time to read.
0: Yeah. You know, I think the, uh, the email and Slack thing is something that's interesting is, you know, I think we're always constantly getting pinged and at least from my perspective, constantly getting teams messages, right? This just kind of what we use. Same, same analog for, for Slack. And, you know, I get an email. It's like, what the heck is this? Right. Why are you sending me email? <laughs> you know, there's this instant gratification that I think is expected sometimes when you go through a chat process and, that's you know, right. right or wrongly, it's, you know, it's really blurred, I think, the lines of what does the working day look like for a lot of people because now you're getting them on your phone, you have you know, the same kind of equivalencies from a capability standpoint, and uh, unless you do a good job of setting boundaries, right, from, from work versus downtime, uh, I think it definitely is a rabbit hole that a lot of people can and, and have fallen down into.
2: Right. When's the last time you spent more than 10 minutes focusing on a task without looking at an email, right? So that's one way to think about it.
0: Uh, just this podcast? Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see. Um, so so let me talk real quickly about the, when you went into the first IAM project on Wall Street, I guess, what did that look like? Was it What year was this and kind of where was the IAM space just kind of briefly um, from your experience?
2: Yeah, it was the early 2000s, and you know there weren't many IAM products out there yet, right? This, you're talking not too long after uh, distributed systems really started getting some maturity processes around them. And you know, at Lehman, there were about I'd say 20,000 people at that time. They had just like everybody else, lots of systems. They migrated from from Novell to Windows, and you had Active Directory, and then you had all these disparate systems that needed to be created and managed a trader would get this um you know an equities person would get that or whatever and so you started figuring out do you have a rules-based system uh, a roles-based system and you know we scoured the landscape we ended up picking a product a very young kind of dark horse winner of our bake-off called thor technologies um, and thor technologies ended up getting um they got deployed at goldman as well and got bought by oracle and that became what today is is uh, you know a big part of Oracle's uh, IAM products that they have today. Uh, so it was you know you you're, you had to teach people how to do things differently. You had to make connectors to automatically provision based on whatever rules there were at the time. And it was it was greenfield. Um, and and everybody knew the problem was there. The technology was really young, and and it, you knew it had to be done, but there wasn't too many options to do it. Which will probably segue into passwords and where we're going with the conversation later, right? So now we know how to at least manage, create, and and provision the accounts, right? We've got that. There's really solid projects, the whole IGA landscape, um, where you have these governance frameworks on top. But uh, we're we're moving our focus now to other places, right?
1: Yeah, that's real interesting, the background story on Thor. A lot of the folks that were a part of that company uh, were some of the early employees of the company that Jeff and I Recently worked for Identropy. Um, my experience in the early two thousands, being in New Jersey, so not that far from your neck of the woods, was um, uh, we we wound up purchasing Oblix, but that was the the landscape at the time on the access management side. It was Oblix, um, Netegrity, SiteMinder, and um, IBM had a pretty strong position, but uh, the you know it was Thor and Oblix became. Oracle Identity Manager and Oracle Access Manager.
2: That's right. Yeah, the good old days. The good old
0: days. And now you're with One Cosmos. Other than a cool name, I guess. What is One Cosmos?
2: Yeah. Well, there's a actually a, a pretty neat Genesis story for that name. Um, cosmos with a K. By the way, it's the number one. The word K O S M O S means universe in Greek. And the founder, his name is Hamid uh, Um created the company after having spent many years in the IIM space for the purpose of, of helping people to manage their own identities. All right. And we'll, we'll talk more about that. But so in one cosmos, one universe, the idea is eventually we'll have our own identity under our own control and you'll be able to use that identity anywhere in the universe, which today is just on the planet earth, but who knows, let's see where Elon Musk takes us. Right. Um, because it's the centralized usernames and and passwords and repositories and the the surveillance economy of the the people who quote, manage our identities for us uh, is going to change very soon. So that's where one cosmos, the name came from and the company focuses on establishing identity and letting you use that identity in new ways that preserves privacy and increases security and better user experience.
1: That's pretty interesting genesis story with the uh, one universe and kind of how you played that into uh, one earth at this point. But, uh, that's, you know, one of the things we get out of the podcast is statistics where our listens are coming from. Um, and it's always interesting. 100% of our, our listeners are from planet earth. So there you far, go. All so, right. got so cover far. It. Yeah. So we, don't, far. <laughs> we don't know where it's going. I mean, put it that way. Um, but what I thought was also interesting Michael, in one of our previous conversations, you talked about digital identity, which I always equated identity management and digital identity as kind of the same thing. But, you know, I think you have a a deeper um, definition of digital identity. So, why don't you share that with the audience?
2: Yeah. It's actually been evolving in my head for the last couple of years since I've been focused on all identity all the time. Right. So, a lot of my history was in the 2000s, worms and hackers and viruses and all that and perimeter. And then the perimeter broke down and started doing other things. And now identity is the new perimeter, right? Um, the, the, The new firewall ties into zero trust and such. Maybe we'll touch on that. But if you think about your physical identity, you walk to an airport or you get pulled over by a state trooper on the Garden State Parkway in New Jersey. How do you prove to that individual, the TSA checkpoint or whatever, who you are? You reach into your pocket and you pull out a credential, a driver's license or a passport. You hand it to them. That credential is trusted. So on that credential, you have some security features and it's, it's pretty secure, right? And it has your picture. And the inspector will look at the picture, look at your face, and you've now just proven what your identity is to that individual. And we couldn't do that remotely until very recently because... How do you give somebody a credential remotely and let them verify it? Well, the only thing we've had for 60 years is an alternative, a username and a password. So if you think about a credential being something you have that's trusted and something you are, which is your face matching, you know, listeners might kind of hear where I'm going with this. We can now do a lot of those things remotely using a couple pretty new technologies that have evolved in the last, I'd say five to eight years that are allowing this to be done. So my definition of a digital identity is very much in line with a physical identity and that is a trusted credential that I can hand you and 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 one of these that we all have heard of is a smart card right that's a credential that you know if you're in the government you have CAC cards and PIV cards they give you this this very expensive thing and a reader and, and that holds your credential and then you you match it up with a biometric but we can now do that remotely for for billions of users in a similar fashion. So that's that's my, uh, the way I think about it. Um, but it really, digital identity has a different definition almost for everybody you ask.
0: <laughs> it's very personal, I think, for a lot of people. And I think what you described there, right, is kind of the identity proofing process, um, proving out who you are, who, who you say you are, right, to whatever constituency you're trying to do that to. And this is a conversation we actually started uh, a couple weeks ago with Bala Kumar from Jumio uh, working through kind of identity proofing and, and that sort of thing. And I think this is something that comes up is, um, you know, assurance levels, right. When it comes to identity, the differences between, you know, level one, level two, level three, and how that relates to standards like NIST. Um, and I think it's NIST 863, for example, right. Has some components of what level of assurance is either required or recommended for certain, uh, services right out there. Um, is there, Can you explain, I guess, what those three levels of identity assurance are and, and where they might fit in the real world?
2: Sure. Yeah, the, the identity proofing, it's it's gotten hot since COVID. Uh, I think I've measured $600 million in investments, uh, I think including Jumio, right, in the last eight weeks alone at unicorn status for a lot of these companies. So it is hot because of COVID. What NIST 863-3 is – It's a government standard, of course, and this being a government body, is uh, the definition of how you prove who somebody is remotely by uh, having them present credentials, verifying those credentials and matching it to their live uh, self. Um, It's very much in line with the way we've proven our identity in the physical world, if I go back to that. So you need to open a new bank account in, you know, say year 2010. The bank, because they have high levels of identity requirements by the government, for KYC, anti-money laundering purposes, they need you to bring in two forms of identity, driver's license, a passport, and we'll check the box. Those are very trusted. And what did they do with them? They look at them, they look over, you know, the paper at you and they say, yep, that's you. And maybe they file them away or do some other checks. And that is a really a high level of, of identity assurance. And the same thing would happen with your employer before the employer would let you, you know, pay taxes and earn money, they'd need that same level of assurance. Well, the NIST standard says, well, how do you do that remotely? Well, uh, the way you do it is by introducing multiple forms of identification, verifying them, comparing the data, and then comparing it to your live face. So that NIST standard, uh, 863-3, and then A is the part that says assurance. There's other components that we can touch on. But that A assurance has level one, two, and three. Level one says you're just a name out on the internet. If you've created a PetSmart account, that is a level one identity. You can be Billy Bob Thornton or Joe Smith or Jeff Jim McDonald. It doesn't matter. There's no real proof behind it. You may put your address and some credit cards. To get the level two, you need two forms of identity proof that are verified in what they call strong forms of identity. And there's there's different ways to do it. And it may vary on uh, the other countries have their versions of it, but it's all based on the same principles. Um, and to get to level three, a very the highest level of assurance, you need a way to um, prove that the person holding the documents is a live person. And so that's how you get from one to two to three. It's increasing levels of documents and verification of that. Uh, so now, if you want to go open a, a some types of bank accounts at a neo bank or, or a Coinbase account for crypto, they will do some steps of this process digitally, and it's passing the checks that they need to meet the regulatory requirements.
0: It makes a lot of sense. You know, I think back of my, or when you were talking originally, right, about going to the airport, right, and showing an ID for, for TSA and, and things like that, um, the real ID scenario that we have in the U.S., where there's a lot of states that do not necessarily have an ID that's compliant currently with, um, you know, TSA regulations, I guess, when it comes to validating identity has put a lot of crimps into the process, especially with COVID, people not having the real ID. And you're seeing, you know, if you've flown anytime in the last couple of years, you've probably seen uh placards up at all the checkpoints saying you're gonna need a real ID, the deadline is this, and so now it's been extended a, more, a couple more years. And that and that's led to a crush, at least in Illinois where I am, where the DMV, Department of Motor Vehicles, can't handle the surge of people who are requesting. Real IDs, because when you go and get it, you have to bring in, um, you know, your person, obviously yourself, along with a few documents that basically prove who you are, right? A passport, an existing ID, uh, utility bills, right? Just there's a whole list of stuff, and I think this is an area that would really kind of be ripe to be exploited. To say, okay, how do we automate some of that identity proofing um, at the state level to be able to, you know, address some of the backlogs that people are seeing in the real world. Uh, Rather than just kind of showing up standing in line at the DMV, which I'm sure everyone loves to do, (laughs) right? Um, That's right. And and kind of work through that process. So I'm curious to see if you've seen any uptick in, uh, I guess, state or government agencies looking more into um, remote identity verification and proofing uh, since the COVID area began here.
2: No, it's embarrassing. I, you know, I'll try not to go on a rant, but here we are in 2021 and our. Government doesn't issue us a digital credential, right? They've been doing Estona, Estonia since, you know, 1483, right? We have the Estonia e whole thing that they do. It's amazing. Of course, they're a little bit smaller than the United States in most countries, and they could kind of, you know, get it done because of their size, but they've they set the standards. And here in the U.S., we can't even get the the 50 states to come up with a common driver's license. Or even put a digital credential on it. Our credit cards now have chips and pins on them with our NFC chips with some data on them. Uh, It's just embarrassing. And because of that, there's now a, a $20 billion industry of people taking pictures of a driver's license to verify them. Right? Why don't we have a digital credential? So that's that. I mean, we have a digital credential in our passports. Every one of our passports has an NFC chip in it. And that chip has your personal information on it, your date of birth, your eye color, first, last name, and a very high quality photo of you. Right? Imagine if we could use that for every online transaction. There'd be no more fraud. Um, so um, they're trying in other countries, uh, Singapore, Australia, the uh, Australian tax office is letting you create digital identity there. And you can now create your identity for use for logging into Australian government services. So they've digitized it. It still involves taking a picture. They haven't actually issued a digital certificate in the way that they should. Uh, You're seeing it get more traction in some smaller countries, but it's going to be a long time just because of how long it takes to get things done. Um, So we'll see. Uh, In the meantime, we'll we'll do the best we can with what we have.
0: Yeah, Estonia is a fascinating kind of case example of I guess being really forward thinking, I think I read somewhere like 98% of the population has some sort of digital identity associated with them and that puts them you know, far ahead when it comes to services that require identity and having that common identity. It certainly helps with that. I'm curious because I know this is gonna, this is gonna go down maybe a little of a sideways path, but it wouldn't be an episode if I didn't take us there. Um, when it comes to technology like deepfakes, And the requirement, right, to prove liveness of a person, especially remotely, um, how, you know, where do you see that kind of technology hampering the ability to effectively say, yeah, this is, you know, Jeff and I'm holding up my IDs and I'm blinking and maybe I have some sort of, you know, liveness from a video perspective versus, you know, maybe a digital representation of me that, you know, is not really me and someone's trying to misuse.
2: Yeah, there's some technologies that can can thwart that, but it is going to be uh, an arms race to some extent. Just like you can um, copy it, you know, forge driver's licenses. I don't know how how much they do that on the passport side because of that uh, that's, that uh, chip in there. That's kind of very hard to to duplicate or reproduce. Um, but one of the things that makes remote proofing a little more secure is the fact that you have to interact with the camera you know, you're not just holding up a projector or a a picture and you're asking the user to interact with it in a kind of random way. So for example, in our proofing product, we will ask the user to blink or to smile or turn your head left and right. We check for depth of field. uh, And so you you can do some things like that. Now you put enough money and effort into it and you could probably fool any system. There are certifications that are evolving in the industry as well to help make sure that we're doing the best we can on that front. So uh the lab that tests the NIST 8633 standard, for example, is called iBeta. And there's certifications that you go through to get your product to the highest level that you can with today's technology.
0: Yeah, that arms race is always something that's interesting, right? It's kind of cat and mouse. Um I'm interested in it just because I want to make some sweet memes and gifts. <laughs> that's <laughs> that's my own personal interest in it. Um From a technology standpoint, I would imagine it's gotten easier to do some of this eye proofing work because of the quality of devices that are now out there. Uh, We talked a little bit before, well, in a previous episode, but you know the jump in camera quality, resolution, the ability to do things like depth sensing, right, with um, things like lidar on the new iPhones, or even if you're an Xbox fan, right, the Xbox camera had depth of field when it came to. Um, uh, being able to determine where you are in a 3D space and not just a 2D image, right? Those sorts of things. I would imagine those types of technologies have really impacted the quality and the um, ability to be able to, you know, provide a higher level of assurance that, yes, this is, in fact, you know, more accurate. And it becomes easier because more people have access to them uh, as the costs have come down and those kind of services have been or capabilities have been bundled into devices in the mass market. Is that right?
2: Yeah, there's, there's three technologies that, that we're using to move identity forward in a way it hasn't been done before. The first is the quality of the camera, ability to capture um, high-quality uh, document images and do the OCR, get the image off your face. You know, so the camera is a big enabler, right? 12-megapixel standard. That's amazing. Your laptop still has a 720p camera in it. Um, the second is the trusted platform module. Right so inside nearly every modern smartphone and computer is a separate chip outside of the main memory and and CPU that is made just to keep information safe All right because if you keep it in the main com- uh, computer other programs can get at it so this TPM is a safe place to keep your digital credential your private key which is the same as the driver's license that I used in my earlier example bridging physical and digital together So two things, camera and the TPM. So now I I can give you a credential, something you have, and I can verify your face or your voice, something you are, and put those together. And you'll notice I didn't mention the word passwords in either of those to prove who you are, right? There's no something you know in either of those coming together. So, uh, and then the third is modern cryptography to keep it all safe, secure, and easy to share. So we leverage blockchain technology to keep your credentials safe. As you all know, crypto wallets, cryptocurrencies, when you have that private key, nobody can get it. Otherwise, the entire crypto uh, currency market would, would melt down, right? So if it's safe enough to keep a $220 million wallet safe, it's also safe enough to keep your identity safe, right? So you put those three things together, it becomes a real enabler to prove who you are in a safe and secure way uh, to remote systems that need it.
1: You know, one thing I always like to do is, is bring things back to a real world example. My first um, experience with the 800-63 was in the university context of, you know, I was doing IAM consulting, but for a university. And the In Common Federation has an identity assurance profile framework uh, essentially, you know, one of the cool things about that university context is that most people go to a place, i.e. a campus, and they can present some form of identification. So essentially, they're doing the whole process that we talk about, you know, at at that manual level. Um, but with COVID, but with remote learning, satellite campuses, things like that, I, it just it seems to me that that's also an industry that would be kind of ripe for this type of um, tech- technological advance in identity proofing. Mike, one of the things that I, you know, we, we kind of talked about or titled this um, this episode, the uh, intersection of identity proofing and passwordless, right? And so one of the things we wanted to get into, obviously, was passwordless. So how does that work? um, you know, do I still have a password or am I truly passwordless? And, um, you know, kind of how would, a an organization kind of go about implementing passwordless technology?
2: Yeah, no, that's quite a loaded question, but, um, it, it actually is simpler than it, you know, it, it, it sounds. So when people think passwordless, they, they think, uh, 2FA or getting a code or using some type of uh, of token. And there are ways to, to get rid of your passwords with other things that are still, these things that can be stolen. Uh, our definition of passwordless is using your identity to authenticate instead of a knowledge, you know, a secret or knowledge-based. And again, going back to your identity, it's that private key and your biometric. So one of the most common use cases is your web-facing systems. So for example, you wanted a real world example. Some of our clients use it. Instead of a username and password on a login screen, we put a QR code. That QR code is a way for your handset, your mobile, which has the key and and can interface with your biometrics to start a conversation remotely. Scan the QR code. It says, can you sign this and send it back to me and start a secure exchange? That's it. You you engage with that system remotely, scan the QR code, prov- prove your biometrics. We have now proven that you have your private key, you know via digital signature, and that you have your biometrics. And basically, you're in without even touching a keyboard. And there's other ways to engage with the system. You could have the message be sent to you, you know via push, um, and and it could be st- step up in different ways where you ask for biometrics along the way. Um, we have. Uh, seen a lot of progress in remote access and a lot of interest in that for corporations and for the onboarding of new customers as well. So uh, that's where some of the low hanging fruit is today. To, and, and the goal there is to simplify the user experience and prevent fraud. Right? So we're seeing that being leveraged by SCA, strong customer authentication on the payment side and things like that.
1: Yeah, I guess it's one of the few areas where you can actually improve security and at the same time, improve the user experience but just from a ter- from the standpoint of geeking out if you have you know let's take the enterprise use case scenario so you have your workforce where you're connecting to potentially hundreds of systems and you have some of them are you know cut over to passwordless so it could be in a cutover scenario or it could be that you have some systems that are you know so old they're not worth retrofitting into using passwordless technology um if they're all connecting back to a common user directory like active directory, is there still an underlying password that the person would need
2: to know? Yeah. They're they're in any system that's architected with passwords in its central store, active directory, they still exist. The goal is to get the user to use them as infrequently as possible and ultimately to get rid of them altogether. So a common path, we call it the passwordless journey is you pick two or three systems that are your kind of 80 20 of where the most interaction is with the users. And in any Fortune 1000 company, that's your remote access, VPN, VDI, Citrix, right, coming in the front door. And then as you hit the operating system, Windows or Mac, if you solve those two and then combined with your SSO system, you really are solving password challenges for 80% of your interactions with the user. So that means they're not typing in their Windows password 15 times a day as their workstation locks. They're not changing that password every 90 days with the new 16 character password. And of course, there's the security quote side benefits, right? There's no credential to be stolen. But to your point, what happens when they hit that HR system that was built 15 years ago that still logs in with the legacy AD username and password, you don't even know where the code is for that anymore. So for that, the way uh, we we tackle it is we let the user reset the password on demand by using their biometrics. So HR system, I need to change my 401k contribution. Oh, my username and password. Well, I just spent 72 days not typing my password and I don't even know it anymore. All right, so they hop up, they they go into the app, they scan with their biometrics, they type a new 16 character password in, hit enter. And then go to the website and type it in and they're done. So, you know, it's not perfect, but it's far better than calling the help desk or writing the password down, you know, that on that 72nd day to go use it. So really on demand, when you do need it, you can just push a button and have it reset in the same trusted way that you use to authenticate.
1: Yeah, that really is an awesome uh, real world scenario because I totally see myself doing that, even living in a non-passwordless world, going to that. Uh, once a year tax website, and you're like, oh, I've gone here for the last 10 years, but I can never remember the password. Um, so I'm wondering, you know, in the original scenario that you brought up, kind of the external website and single sign-on systems that maybe a corporation has, I'm wondering, does a password solution like yours replace that SSO system or work in conjunction with it, integrate with it?
2: Yeah, now we, while we do support single sign-on protocols, your SAMLs and OIDCs, et cetera, um, we are not a single sign-on platform that's designed to replace your Octas, Pings, Azure ADs, SiteMinders, Forgerocks, et cetera. They've got very robust, deep integrations across the enterprise. The challenge they have is they still need a username and password to get in the front door. So when you come to that you know, uh, SSO system, You put a username, you put a password, and then you do 2FA. You still have that same really uh, vulnerability of a username, password, and an interceptable code, and you have the user friction. So what we propose is let us be the new IDP that sits in front of that identity provider because we have a strong proofed identity, right? Pretend your identity assurance level two as per that NIST standard. Now you know that when you go into the front door of your SSO, that I have digitally signed proof that I'm the same person that gave you the driver's license three months ago. And um, we can cover the systems that they don't, right? So no SSO system out there lets you go a uh, single factor passwordless into Windows workstations, for example. They just haven't touched those platforms uh, because they still rely on a password at the end of the day. So we can touch the half dozen key systems that they don't and help them with their journey to do SSO downstream. it's very complementary and we work with them every day
0: you mentioned um, blockchain earlier and i'm curious how you see blockchain and just decentralized identity in general Uh, how's that evolved the iam landscape over the years
2: how much time do you have
0: (laughs) Uh, let's (laughs) say we have about five minutes
2: (laughs) no just kidding um you know so it's funny one cosmos the genesis story take your identity anywhere and use it anywhere in the world, right? Going back to the company's origins, that is the long-term vision. So the, the principles around blockchain-based identity are embedded in two other standards that we didn't talk about today. One is from the W3C called decentralized identifiers. You can think of that as your white pages entry for where your identity would live in this, this fabric, that this identity fabric that's out there. So W3C DIDs decentralized identifiers set up that fabric, and there's a uh, industry initiative via the Linux Foundation. Everybody knows Linux, which sets all kinds of open source um, projects called Trust over IP. So we made a, a Trust over IP compliant decentralized identifier. What that means is all the work we're doing today to go passwordless and have that public private key pair. In the future will allow your identity to be portable and take it taken with you which is what the goal of a decentralized identifier is at the heart of that is a distributed ledger which writes you know the audit trail of who's um accessing what systems and so forth so um it's you know definitely out of the scope it could be a whole another hour podcast on where the decentralized identity industry is going But it's gotten a lot of major momentum. You've got big names behind it, IBM, Microsoft, Accenture, Samsung, right? They're all participating in this new decentralized identity frameworks that are out there. And that is the future of identity that will let it go cross-industry and even cross-country in a digital fashion. And the second standard, which goes hand-in-hand with it, is called W3C verifiable credentials. So we use verifiable credentials to let somebody get industry or personal uh, certifications and put them into their really digital wallet. So, what school did you go to? Here's a digital certificate to prove it. Do you have a COVID vaccination? Let me issue you that certificate. And that certificate makes it really easy to share your identity attributes in a privacy-preserving way. So that's the future of identity. It's what gets me excited. I spend you know probably 20% of my my day um, working on those future initiatives with industry associations and so forth. Um, so. Thank you for asking. That's uh, that's where we're going.
1: So, Mike, I'm wondering with the blockchain, is it the technology that enables what you guys are doing or is it just the um, the path you chose to build your platform on? In other words, would there be a one Cosmos solution without the blockchain? Uh, Would that even be possible?
2: You know, we we are blockchain agnostic. Um, we've chosen to build ours with a particular set of technologies, but it's an abstraction layer, so we can run on Ethereum or R3, et cetera. Um, but it is a very powerful enabler because of the reasons I, I stated earlier, right? When you put that private key in the user's hand, it's undeniable that the uh, cryptography behind blockchain is very solid, right? So there's other ways. There's people that say, you know, You don't need to use blockchain. I don't know if they're using a centralized database. Some people just keep it on the phone only. And what happens when you lose your phone, you start over, right? So the combination of those two, in my opinion, is the only way I've seen that's really viable. And again, Microsoft, IBM, Moncosmos, uh, Accenture, just Google any one of these companies and the word blockchain identity, and you'll see there's entire practices spun up. So we're not the only ones to, to think that way. And I think it's going to be a continuing trend to put those two technologies together to keep user data private and in control of the, of the hand of the user.
1: So it's the idea like I would have a wallet and in my wallet I would have a driver's license. So in other words, an identity issued from the state of Georgia and a, a credential issued from Rutgers University where I went for school and mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera, because that's kind of how it sounds to me.
2: Yeah. The way we've architected it is your private key is in your enclave, right in the TPM of your phone. And as you're enrolling credentials, you encrypt them and put them into a a blockchain-based file system. So we don't write any PII to a public blockchain, right? We use blockchain really as a private permissioned mechanism to keep data safe behind the scenes. Where the public ledger would come into play is where you could say, hey world, here's my public key. If you need to get a hold of me, Much in the way PGP works for sending a secure email, you have a public key that's out there that anybody can use. So that public-private key pair is the enabler. The private blockchain keeps the data safe, and if you ever need to get rid of your, uh, make sure your data can never be read by anybody. You just destroy your private key, much like you could throw away your cryptocurrency wallet if you wanted to, right? Um, So again, it's it's an enabler um, that. There's other ways to do it for sure, but it is the uh, the leading way today.
0: Mike, you've been really gracious of your time. We probably want to start to wrap things up here, but um, we probably want to leave on a, on a little bit of a lighter note than something so dense <laughs> as identity and, and blockchain. Um, I know we, we've
1: been kind of asking non-IM questions. Jim, what do you got for us this week? All right. What I've got this week is what is the best vacation spot you've been to and one that you haven't been to, but want to go to. And we'll start with you, Mike.
2: Yeah, vacation. Um, Let's go. I mean, I I just went to Costa Rica two months ago, and that was amazing. But my favorite spot was uh, Bora Bora. Uh, I just have this vivid memory of the, the mountains against the water. I was on a jet ski ride. I could see 60 feet to the bottom. And I'm a scuba diver, so, you know, swimming with turtles and rays, and, of course, all that stuff is amazing. So... Um, I'd go back there, uh, anytime I could. If I, if I find that $220 million wallet, I'm going there every week, um, where I'd like to go. And there's all kinds of, of, uh, uh, like Philippines and, um, Thailand, Vietnam. I haven't been to any of that area. I've been all around the world, probably 25 or 30 countries, but that's an area that's missing. But frankly, I haven't seen a lot of the United States as, as, as. Dry or, maybe boring as that sounds. I've been to the edge of the Grand Canyon. I haven't stepped in it and looked at it. I haven't been to any of the amazing national parks that we have, like uh, uh, Yosemite or or uh, you know Zion or any of these other places. so um, if if the misses can get away from the Caribbean for a time, I'm gonna hop in an RV and go check out our own country. So
1: that's a really cool answer. and in fact, uh, the, the U.S. locations, I have been to a lot of them. Yosemite, I, I hiked to the top of Half Dome. Uh, Zion is where I went on my honeymoon. Uh, so, yeah, yeah, I'm a big National Park fan. But I've got to say the best vacation I've been on is Maui in Hawaii. Mm. Uh, just, you know, fantastic, beautiful place. Um, one of our colleagues moved there, and he became an independent consultant and moved there, and I envy him. I envied him until the COVID lockdown, and I think Hawaii was especially restrictive, and I think, you know, take island fever and turn it into cabin fever at that point, but, um, you know, the other place that I haven't been to that I'd like to get to is something you mentioned. I've heard about the beaches in Thailand and that there are actually elephants that just walk along the beach, and I just think that was is so cool. So one of these days... I've got to do that.
2: Yeah, that sounds awesome. I'll, I'll be right behind you. Hey, Jeff, w- what about
1: you? And then take us out.
0: Yeah, you know, I've, I feel like I've had a very boring vacation <laughs> career. I do, I do far more interesting work travel, which isn't the same. I think probably the place that I've had the most fun or at least most relaxed would have been Playa del Carmen, which is a little bit south of Cancun in Mexico. My wife and I went there for our 10 year wedding anniversary several years back. And, it was probably one of the few vacations where there were no plans, just sat on the beach, you know, had beverages <laughs> and ate food and just didn't have anything to worry about. So I think that was probably the best location I've been to. But for a bucket list, no doubt Tokyo. I would love to visit Tokyo and kind of Japan and kind of tour tour the uh, the area there. Um, probably no surprise there given my uh, proclivity towards uh technology but um that's that's where i think i would like to head out next but yeah so i think with that it's probably a good spot maybe we can kind of leave it for this week a little bit lighter note but before we go any uh final words of wisdom uh mike uh that you want to impart upon uh us
2: no no i i mean any any uh iam fans out there <clears throat> the 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 passwordless journey is one step at a time um you know there's there's so much going on in the space it's hard to know which way's up or down and who's telling the truth or not but uh anything that you um that you can get your hands on and, and play with is it's very easy to, to, to prove this stuff out so I'm, I'm sure there'll be a lot of geeks out there like me that get their hands on it and log into their corporate or personal mail without a password for the first time and that's when you become a believer it's like that first time you use apple pay you're like oh i get it now right so uh, it'll be a fun journey for all of us in fixing the problem.
0: I, I can't remember the exact quote, but something about, you know, something that's mo- that's techno- technologically advanced is almost indis- indistinguishable from magic.
2: Magic, that's right. Yeah, exactly.
0: <laughs> I totally butchered
1: that, but I think I oh, you got where I was going with it. You Jim, what it. about yourself? I mean, like I mentioned, I've been obsessed with ransomware lately, as I think a lot of the world has. If you're an IM practitioner out there and you've been wondering, how do I get Funding for my IAM initiative. I think that's it. It's ransomware because executives, non technology and technology executives are quaking in their boots right now. And how do we get our arms around this and not be the next big victim of a multi million dollar ransom? So, folks, the the information is out there. Um, you know, just do a Google search on ransomware tracker or you know looking at some of the recent ransomware attacks and follow the links and you can educate yourself pretty deeply in a couple of couple of hours, couple of days. And it's actually really interesting reading when you get into it. It's almost like a spy versus spy novel. Thanks, Jim. Good points there. I think, you know, how you
0: eat the elephant walking on the beach, one bite at a time. <laughs> so <laughs> that's probably where we'll leave it for this week. Mike, thank you so much for your time. Uh, I'll have links in the show notes to uh, connect with Mike on LinkedIn. You can also learn more about one cosmos uh, number one, and then kosmos.com dot com. So you can learn more about what they're doing in this space, which is really interesting, as well as some uh, some other links we'll have there for some of the books we talked about. This is how they tell me the world ends, the age of surveillance capitalism, and then if you want to be a dork like me and read sci-fi, we are Legion or we are Bob. Uh, so I'll have links to all those books that you can kind of check out, um, uh, hopefully on your own time. And with that, we'll go ahead and leave it for this week. Thanks, everyone, for listening, and we'll talk with you all in the next one. Thanks, everybody. thanks for listening to the Identity at the Center podcast. If you like what you heard, don't forget to subscribe and visit us on the web at identityatthecenter.com.